Yo, before we get into this podcast, I want to ask for a huge favor from you. And that is if you have or you are getting value from this podcast, if you were to leave us a review or subscribe, it would mean the world. And quite frankly, selfishly, it's because I want to, we want to continue sharing these conversations, this medicine with the world. And when you leave a review, when you subscribe, it's a vote. And we would love to have your vote. Nonetheless, thank you so much and enjoy. Cornell, what is going on, my friend? How are you doing, Wolf? Thank you so much for having me. I am, as I told you right before we started, I'm doing way better than when I woke up, had some funky energy, but we dealt with it. And I'm just grateful to be on this podcast with you right now. Honestly, like it's going to be a great conversation. So thank you for being here. Oh, you're quite welcome. It's my pleasure, as you know. Awesome. Awesome. What is your intention for today's conversation, my friend? My intention for today's conversation is to have an honest conversation about entrepreneurship as empowerment and entitlement for communities of color, particularly Mm. given where we are in the world right now. Um, I think it's important for us to see this as an opportunity to create our own future. I love that. My intention in conjunction with that is to speak truth and be transparent, which kind of, kind of work together, but speak truth and being transparent about whatever is that comes out. And uh, commonly what I find is that I try to like get everything nice and wordly mapped out and everything. So I'm just going to try to not have it all perfectly laid out and have some fun. Okay. Sounds good to me. So let's go ahead and dive right into your intention. Okay. You're really about empowering communities of color. Yes, that is. And it's sort of interesting since we're also here kind of telling stories and, and just being raw and real with it. I am 59 years old. I will be 60 years old this December. And I'm sort of finding my way, stumbling somewhat reluctantly into leadership. Um, as I said to my mom a couple of weeks ago, you know, if I haven't found some wisdom at this point in my life, I haven't been paying attention. Um, I started in the field that I'm in, I, as you can see from my, my logo up here, it, it has something to do with tech, even though I say that tech doesn't matter. I mean, there's a picture of a computer right there, you know, so obviously it's got a little something to do with it, but I started 27 years ago, um, doing technology and, and how that happened. If you got time to hear a story, I was 31 years old at the time and I was an itinerant musician in New Jersey on the Jersey shore. Yeah. You know, which is, is a story. Now we got to go back to me at 17 and a half and I'm working at a camp in upstate New York. And I meet this guy from Monmouth County, New Jersey. I'm a New Yorker. I was born and raised in Brooklyn. So he, you know, we were camp counselors at this sleepaway camp in Sargates, New York, which is near Kingston and Woodstock, New York. Mm-hmm. And um, so at night after our campers all went to bed, we would go to this shack on the top of the hill, which was a counselor's lounge and hang out. Yeah. And uh, he had this acoustic guitar and he would play some songs and some original songs of his. It got a lot of attention, wooed the young ladies. It's, it That's raided. not a bad thing at that t- at that age. No, no. <laughs> well, unless you're not the one who's wooing the young ladies and getting all the oh. attention which was my situation. So I was a little envious. 
So after he played this one song of his that that he I'd heard a couple of times, I threw in a harmony, which impressed no one except for him. <laughs> so we went out on the on the steps of the, the thing and we worked out the harmonies and and then we worked out an, another song of his. And then I would be walking around during the day and I would sing a couple of the songs that I wrote. And one song is like, oh, that's that's really nice. Who wrote that? It's like, oh, I did. It's like, oh, you're a songwriter. So then he worked out the chords to a couple of my songs. Oh. Now, I was 17. I'd been writing songs since I was about 12. This was the first time I'd ever heard a song I had written actually as a song. And then he, returning the favor, threw in some harmonies with myself. And we'd do that. And people, oh, you guys sound pretty good. So then he told me, he's like, well, you know, I'm looking to put together a band. I was like, well, good luck with that. Because you live in Jersey and I live in New York. And once the summer's over, you're never the way she'll meet. So then he started telling me this story about how Jerry Garcia and Phil Lesh met this kid named Bob Weir in college, and they taught him how to play guitar, and they formed a band called The Wizards, which lately, later became The Grateful Dead. So oh, shit. Like, yeah. So I was like, that's an interesting story. What's that got to do with me? He's like, well, I'm looking for a bass player. It's like, great. I played the viola in high school and junior high school, never played the bass, never had an interest in doing so. Again, why are you telling me this? It's like, well, you know, maybe you could. Do I like, wait, you think I'm just going to pick up an instrument I've never even considered playing because I meet some guy that lives in another state who's putting a band together? You're crazy. <laughs> but, he, but he told me this story like every time he would see me, two or three times a day for a couple of weeks. And finally, one day we're in the cafeteria having, you know, didn't, you know having lunch with our counselor, our campers. And I walked over to his table and I said, Dow, that's his name. I said, Dal, all right, I will play in your band. Just never tell me that effing Grateful Dead story again. Oh, man. And the funny thing is, he only told me that story maybe a couple of dozen times. Since then, I have to have told that story thousands of times in just discussing my life. And so the middle of the summer, his mother came up. He's not the problem. You're the problem. <laughs> exactly. So we went down with him to, to New Jersey, went to this, this pawn shop in Long Branch, bought a cheap bass and an even cheaper amplifier, and proceeded to fall in love with the instrument. Oh, wow. You know, now, when I moved down there, it was with the intention of being in a band with him and a bunch of the other guys I would hang out with. Mm -hmm. Um. <laughs> This again, so I, we would, I would go there, went in and out of the Air Force after this, came back to New York. Now it's like 1982. I'm working a job, actually a very good job. Through I wasn't born yet, by the way. <laughs> See, I tell you, I'm, I'm a geezer. <laughs> so I was working at a Citibank. Actually, Citibank was the only bank at the time that had ATM, you know, teller machines. Yeah. And when you would pick up the phone to call customer service... You wouldn't get someone inside your branch. You'd, there would be a call center that was in Forest Hills, Queens. And I was one of the call center operators. And during the weekends, I would go down to Jersey, hang out in jam with my friends. And let's just say there were <coughs> herbal supplements involved. Um, and um, Legal, of course. Yeah. Mostly sage. <laughs> yeah, of course. Well, if that's your story, and I'm sticking with it. <laughs> And I would miss the last train back to New York Sunday night. Now, the first train leaving the Jersey Shore Monday morning would not get me to Penn Station in time for me to get to Forest Hills, Queens by nine o'clock. They were going to, the, the Citibank was going to hire me from the temp agency and promote me 
to be a weekend supervisor because one of the things that we had to deal with was people would deposit a check, then they would write a check against that check before it cleared. Mm-hmm. Then by the time they got the notification that the check they wrote bounced, they checked their balance and the balance would be there. They would not understand what happened because this was that the float they used to do, three to five days for it to clear, yet your check is going to be debited immediately because that's the game that banks play. So, of course, people would call up and sometimes they would be quite heated. So I developed a tactic, you know, you hear somebody screaming in your ear and I, even then at like 21, 22 years old, realize you're not yelling at me because I'm a voice on the other end of the phone. You don't even know me. So I would say, sir or madam, look, I I understand your situation. I'd really like to help you. But in your agitated state, I I really, it's kind of hard to communicate with you. So I'd really like it if you could just, you know, take a moment. I'd like to resolve this. However, if you continue to be in this state, I have a button on my console that's marked next call. (laughs) And then I would stop talking. Almost invariably they would calm down because they just heard me say extremely politely, if you don't chill out, I'm going to hang up on you. But I would never actually either say that or do that. And the problem was some of the other call operators would do that. They'd get, get yelled back. They'd hang up. And of course, you can't do that. This is customer service. And it got to the point where they would transfer calls to me because I developed this technique. And that's why they were going to, uh, you know, they were going to promote me. But yeah. I blew it because I kept missing the Mondays. Now, in, during those jam sessions, one time, one time, a mother of one of the people I was jamming with said to me, well, you know, you guys are really good. And to me, since I was the only one that didn't live down there, if you ever decided to make a go of it, you could crash on our living room floor and, you know, until you got on your feet. So now it's about half a year, maybe eight months after that conversation, and I've lost the job at Citibank. And I said, well... Follow your heart, Cornell, I guess. And clearly your heart is down there in Jersey with the music. So I grabbed everything I could carry. I jumped on the, the, the Jersey Shore train. And from the Asbury Park stop, I called her up and said, hey, uh, Barbara, you remember that time when, when you said that thing? <laughs> Do you think you <laughs> can pick me? Yeah, no, no, no. I need you to pick me up from the train station. I'm here. That was me calling her to let her know I was coming down. Actually, not to let her know I was coming down, to let her know I had come down. What year was this? This was 1983. So there wasn't cell phones? No. This was like a payphone? Yeah. Okay. Just, oh, that, just that's not, getting, getting my yeah. context right here. Right. See, that's not the problem. The thing is, I didn't call her from the New York end of the trip, which I perfectly well could have done. I just presumed, here I am. Come get me. What if she'd said no? I didn't even have the fare to get back to New York, nor did I have any place to go because I'd left the, the apartment. I was rooming with my, my buddies who were crashing in a, in a squat in the Lower East Side of New York, my punk rock friends. So I don't know what I would have done. Now, she did say yes. She came and picked me up. But it's just that's the kind of... I look back at myself now and I like to tell that story to laugh at myself because like, what the hell were you thinking? That's not, that's not the way you do that. But it wasn't my idea to, to be a musician. It was Dow's idea who through persistence talked to me and I tell all of that story just at the background of how my career started. So now it's eight years after that. The people I went down to, to jam with, they all suddenly had other things to do. Everything was great and lovely when it was just us hanging out on the weekend. But now that I'm here, let's do this. 
oh, I think I'm going to go back to college. I think I'm going to start my contracting business. I think I'm going to, it's like, really guys? Really? You had one I, job. I, yeah. So it's like, you know what? I don't know what you guys are doing. I came here to make music. That's what I'm going to do. Wasn't a lot of bands, made a lot of friends, had a lot of fun, didn't make a dime. So now it's 1992. I have been unemployed for two years. I've lived through my unemployment. I'm now on welfare, which is paying all everything for me to go to college, the local community college. And um, I'm living in a SRO hotel, single room occupancy hotel, a welfare hotel, if you will. And I've got a girlfriend, so occasionally I'm over at her apartment. So I come to her apartment one that night. Actually, it's a, the bottom floor of a two-family house. She lived on the bottom. Her cousin lived on the top. So I show up at her place one night. And she says, oh, your cousin Stanley left a message. He says to give him a call when you get a chance. Now, I hadn't spoken to my cousin Stanley in almost four years, and he didn't know anyone that I knew in New Jersey. So I'm wondering, how did he, he left a message on my girlfriend's answering how does he know she's my girlfriend how did he get her number what what the heck is going on no (laughs) this is 93 so i now go to the phone booth to make a collect phone call neither of which exist anymore so he picks up the phone it's like hey how you doing you working so i'm thinking this is awfully casual because i'm thinking going to the phone who died because why else would you go yeah. through that kind of trouble to track? I mean, like I said, he tracked me down like a bounty hunter. <laughs> you know, that was amazing. Um, and I says, no, I do. I am so not working. He says, well, I'm working at this place called Lehman Brothers. And uh, there's a position open for a Unix system administrator. And I think you could get the job. I want you to come up here and I'll prepare you to, to take the interviews. So I said, hold, hold on a second. The only thing I understood about what you just said was Lehman Brothers and job. Because I don't know what Unix is and I don't know what a system administrator is. He's like, don't worry about that. I see the people around here do it and, and none of them are any smarter than you. So if they can do it, I'm sure you can get this job. It's like your, your stepfather died. You're now the man of the family. Even though your sister's older than you, you're the oldest boy. And so you're, you're, you're the head of the family now. You got to do this. So my decision to be a musician, which is what had me in Jersey for almost 10 years, wasn't my idea. My career that I am now in the 27th year of wasn't my idea. It was this crazy cousin. I told me, and I said, dude, you think that I'm broke-ass musician. I haven't worked in two years, dude. You think I'm going to come up to some global financial company and they're going to give me a technical job? You're nuts. But what have I got to lose? Nothing else. I get to go up to New York for a couple of weeks, weekends, hang out with my cousin. You know, uh, he prepped me for the the interview. I would interview with five people over two days. Two of them were like, eh. One of them was like, yes. One of them was hell no. And the fifth one was the manager of those four. Fortunately for me, he said to the guy who said yes, who was going to be my direct supervisor, well, he's going to be your direct report. So the, the call is yours. And that guy said yes. And I was hired, and that was the beginning of my career in February of 93. So, so many things in my life, and I tell that long-winded story just to say that so much of the significant things in my life were somebody else's idea. And I just had to stop resisting and answer the call and say, okay, this doesn't even really make much sense to me, but I guess so. And now here I am. 
almost 60 years old and fate and circumstances say, dude, you've got to step up and be a leader for your community and for your culture. I don't care if you don't want to, you have to. And once again, it's not my idea. The pandemic is not my idea. The economic turmoil that we're under is not my idea. But that's, I've, or I've long since accepted, okay, that's the way my life goes. And I know that I know it's the next step because A, it's usually not my idea. And B, it's usually something that I want to, my initial impulse is to turn around and run like hell in the other direction. Mm-hmm. That is so wildly opposite I'm just going to acknowledge my brattiness. I'm just like, I have so many great ideas of all the things that I want to do. I'm just like, I want to do like, okay, like I want to do what I want to do. And like, I, I have all these ways. I'm like, Oh, I want to support here and do this and do that. I was like, I couldn't imagine because I spent, <clears throat> I couldn't imagine having everything kind of like chosen for me that way. Although I think in a weird way, it does kind of unfold that way that even though we think we're making choices in the, in the grand unfolding of life, that ultimately a lot of it's, it's happening opportunities present themselves and we either, as you said, pick up the phone or we don't. And the thing that I'm kind of left with, with what you're saying is, is let's just say you, you rewound a little bit or even now, or even then, what is something that you've always wanted to do? Like, obviously I get that you're, you know, you're, you're masterful in what you do now in terms of the, the solution side of it and being able to provide people with solutions, especially, you know, the, the, the normal person who says like, Oh, I don't know anything is like, don't worry, I got you. But what's like that, that almost like soul calling outside of the, I, I would imagine the other serving your communities and things like that. What are the things that like really pull at your, your heartstrings in terms of personal things? You know, maybe it was music, maybe it wasn't, but do you have, those you know, here's, here's, here's the thing. It has always been communicating. Now, when I was younger, I don't know that I could have articulated it that way. Mm-hmm. When I was 12, my, my mom was a very avid reader and taught both myself and my, my, older, my, older, my only sister um, to read by the time we were both four years old. Mm-hmm. So I've been an avid reader, love reading. I was literally the kid who'd be under the covers at night with the flashlight after we were supposed to go to bed and turn out the lights, reading a book, you know, turn out the light, put that flashlight and go to bed. <laughs> um, I, was, no, I was literally the kid when I was in junior high school. I would be at the main branch of the Brooklyn Public Library, the Grand Army Plaza Library, and the lights would be going off overhead. It's 15 minutes after closing, and I'm still face-planted in a book. And the security guard's coming and making his last sleep. He's like, uh, young man, um, we're closed. <laughs> it's like, you, you got back tomorrow, but you got to go home. We're, we're, what the hell are you doing? So that was me. And she was a member of this book club. There were back in the days they had book clubs for, for a small amount. You could get a book delivered every month and you had to, you could pick, they came in the magazines and you usually got the first one, like X number of books for a penny. And then you had to join them for a year after that. So there was a collection uh, of books. It was called the Viking book of poetry of the English speaking world. Mm-hmm. Of course I remember it. And it was a two volume set. It started like 12th century English, like, like Beowulf era. You know, those poems were so not English that a third of the page was notes to tell you what these arcane old English or middle English terms translated to in modern English, all the way up to like maybe the 1940s and 50s. And so I had a a habit of I would just read a a couple of pages each night. Um, So I very much the poetry spoke to me. 
because it amazed me that here are these people who are centuries dead, mm-hmm. but yet they are able to communicate with me through the written form, through language. And, and one night I read this poem. It was called The, the, the Author's Resolution. And uh, it was one of those poems that the meter of the words gives you the pattern. You can't say it, but any other way. You know, Shall I, wasting in despair, die because a woman's fair? Or make pale my cheeks with care because another's rosy are? Be she fairer than the day or the flowery meads in May? If she thinks not well of me, what care I how fair she be? And as a 12-year-old kid and, you know, unrequited love, because, you know, I was the dorky little geek and, you know, girls didn't like me because I just wasn't that dude. So that really spoke to me. So that was the last page. Um, and I was like, okay, that's pretty cool. And that's nice. And so it's the next night and it's time for me to flip the page. And there's four more verses. I was like, oh, oh, this is cool. Because I thought that was just a one verse thing. And that was kind of cool with stanza, if you will. So I ended up years later with the guy I told you about before. I ended up making that a song. And I did that with several of the rock bands I was with. And they're like, dude, I really like that song. That, that author. I'm like, wait a minute. Clearly you have to realize I didn't write those lyrics. I mean, one of them is, is a be she meeker, kinder than turtle dove or pelican. If she be not so, it's like wait, turtle dove or pelican. Really, really? Do you really think that in 1982, I wrote that song? I wrote those words? But I used to introduce and I'd say, you know, uh, this is one of the few songs that I collaborated with and didn't write both words in music. And, you know, I wrote the music to it and uh, the author, uh, you know, unfortunately died in 1667. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so I always, I thought that what I wanted to do was be a great musician. And then when I was down there, I also did some spoken word poetry for about a year and a half. I would take a notebook there and I would write what I read that night. I would write it in the bar and then get up on stage and read it. That was the only way I could really write. Because otherwise I had that moon, dune, moon, tune, june, spoon, you know, bullshit, rhymey kind of stuff. But I would write really kind of free form spoken word stuff because of the pressure that I got to write it now and get up and do it. Over time, I came to realize that it wasn't about being a poet. It wasn't about being a musician. It was about being a communicator. Hmm. And all of those skills and all that experience, because when I got into the, the, the tech, look, I, the first job that I got at Lehman Brothers, before they hired me from the temp agency, I was making almost twice what I had ever made in my life. Then when they hired me, that went up again by about 40%. And every job, it was almost like a, a, a third again increase of what I was making at the job before. But I was feeling, first of all, that I had betrayed myself because I gave up on my ambitions to be this musician and uh, a bandmate of mine in that original band I was with down there. She had this one lyric from a song of hers, live for your music and die for your song, which I took on as like, yeah, because to me, a band was like Robin Hood and the band of merry men, you know, the band of brothers were banded together for life and we're in this us against the world. And what do you mean you're quitting the band? What the hell? You know, <laughs> you know, and um, and I was the best band I was in had three drummers. So every time I see Spinal Tap now, I laugh my ass off at the exploding drummers because it is so true. That is the one I don't know why, but that's the one band member that rotates more than any other instrument is drums for some reason. But then I, I, I I'm in my career. It's 20 It's 2008. 
the subprime mortgage meltdown happens. This is not, this is a field. Remember, I'm in tech. I taught myself tech. I was in college riding a bike 13 miles each way to go to a community college to study computer science. My cousin calls me up. My, as I like to say, the second time I dropped out of college was to take my first computer job on Wall Street. Mm-hmm. So I am self-taught in all of this. And I worked my way up to a six-figure income. I was network administrator. I was uh, basically, I was the IT manager for a private architectural firm called Guafme Siegel and Associates that, that had private clients such as Jerry Seinfeld, Steven Spielberg, the United Nations, the W Hotel chain, and Yale University. So I love that job. I, I woke up on Mondays looking forward to going to work. Yeah. And then the subprime mortgage meltdown happens. And after a year and laying off 12 architects, they finally laid me off. And I figured, eh, you know, whatever. I shopped my resume around. But each offer wanted me to do four job titles for 80% of the salary I had been making just doing one. And at that point, I realized I got I to gotta hang out my own shingle. I got to start my own thing. It wasn't, again, it wasn't my idea to become an entrepreneur. Here mm-hmm. we go. The, the theme continues. But I couldn't, I couldn't do, you know, $250,000 worth of work for 85 grand, even though that might have seemed like a, a good salary. It was just too much overworking. And, you know, then once the market recovered, I would have been priced down here when I should have been up there. P.S. I never got back up here. Still not there yet. But one of the things that you do when you go independent is you network. And you, you do, uh, I've had an opportunity working with an organization called Harlem Business Alliance to do some workshops. You know, and you do a slide deck and you do presentations. So I did on, you know, free and open source uh, software that small businesses and entrepreneurs could use. I called it the Small Business Success Toolkit. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, made some money, made a lot of connections. And then I saw, oh, you know, I'm kind of good at this because it was, it was two sessions and two hours each. And everyone's filling in. I prepared, you know, I prepared the PowerPoints, whatever have you. The room's coming in. I'm standing at the podium getting ready to start. And I see the room filling up and I'm like, wait a minute. I've never done this before. I don't know. These people are looking at me like I know. I don't know how to teach people. What the hell? And just as I'm about to panic, I thought, Cornell. It's just another cold room. That's all you've done this before. Granted, you, you had a base strapped around your neck, but it's, it's really just the same thing. You know how to entertain a crowd. You know how to get their attention. You know how to read the crowd and see if you're losing them or not. The only difference is instead of playing an instrument, you're going to be playing your PowerPoint. You've done spoken word poetry. You've even done a little stand-up comedy. You got this. And it turns out that I did. And... Years progress now. That was in 2010. I've done a whole lot of workshops. I, I, I do slide decks. I've been paid to do, you know, the hundred bucks an hour to do presentations online. So I eventually came to realize all of that stuff, that was not my passion that I abandoned. That mm-hmm. was just prep work. That was prep work for being. Those were the stepping stones. Exactly. Not even stepping stones. They weren't that insignificant. That was, that was literally, that was the graduate course of public speaking. Mm-hmm. Of, because what was it that I really wanted to do? I wanted to speak into people's listening such that they were touched, moved, and inspired. And you, you know, I'm talking a little land Martian here when I use those terms. And you get it even if some members of the audience won't pick up on the particular terminology. But... That's what it was all about. 
And so all of those experiences were the preparation, was learning how. Because what do you do when you play a song that gives an ovation? You have communicated a message such that it resonated inside somebody and they got it. And that's what makes them do this. They're like, yeah, yeah, I get you. So all it is is I'm taking the music out. I'm not speaking in, in, in metered verse, but I'm still looking to connect with my audience because in, in fact, it's even more important now that I make sure that I'm vibing with them, that I, I understand, is this message going to resonate? And, yeah, because they're and, basically making a decision whether or not you're full of shit and they believe yeah. what you're saying and they have value in it, which is even yes. more important. Yes, yes. And the power comes from... Because I have a, a, a facility with language that I could get up there and say a bunch of crap that I have no connection with whatsoever, and I could do it well. But that's not the point. The point is to take all of those skills, as I say, to use these powers for good. Hmm. To say, who is my, who am I, why, why am I up here? I'm not up here to promote myself. In fact, the first bunch of workshops I did you know, as you know, from our, our work with Red Elephant, I had no ask, I had no offer. And people would come up to me from the very first workshop I did asking me if I had a course or something. And I was like, wait, I should. So the answer I, should have been yes. <laughs> you think? And in fact, I, I sort of stopped doing the presentations because I realized I was doing the best infomercial for a product I didn't have. Oh. And I was like, oh, I could be selling something, except I don't know how to do that. You know, that's how I came uh, to, I mean, I, I knew Iman and Afreen from before that, but that's how I ended up becoming a, a relevant client because I realized I should learn how to do this. I know how to speak well, that's not enough. And, 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 and let's even move past the monetization of it. That's not even the point. To the point of my intention in this conversation is getting on the other side of that and realizing I have the ability to genuinely communicate with people who need to hear what I have to say. Mm -hmm. And what I have to say is that the reason we who can must be the most successful entrepreneurs we possibly can be is because we live in a world where the deciding factor is your access to capital and wealth. I'd love to live in a world where money didn't matter, but I don't. And there's no point in pretending that I do. Money is not everything. Money is not what wakes me up in the morning. But trust me, if I didn't have money, I'd be in a world of hurt. Now, there are a lot of assholes with money. And there are a lot of really good people without money. But how about let's make good people with money? Mm. Let's work on that. Because money and more important businesses, because it's not just money. You can have a good job and have money. Specifically to entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship helps us build strong families and communities. When black and brown kids live in a community where they see people that look like them being the ones who lift that gate up in front of the store, being the owners of those buildings, being their own bosses, they see that it's a possibility for them. Hmm. When without all them even having that forethought, that's exactly. just something that happens without them even thinking about it. Because it's in their environment. Children learn by observation and imitation. So when all they see are pimps and hoes and drug dealers and hustlers on the street, that's, those are the options that they see. They don't make a value judgment about it. It's like a catalog without even knowing it. Exactly. Exactly. And long before they can even attach any morality or ethics to it, that's the environment that they see. 
Like if you capture a, 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 a bird of prey, it will never learn how to hunt because the, the, the fangs and, and, and beak are the tools of hunting, but they have to learn how to do that. Mm-hmm. They have to be taught. And if you take them out of their natural environment where their parent birds and their pure birds show them how to do it, they will never be able to be released in the wild. Hmm. because they were hand fed and they don't even know the claws are just going to mark up your furniture and scratch up the wood, but that's all they're going to do with it. So similarly, if a child sees nothing but low barrier opportunities, those are the options they're going to see that's available to themselves. And Mm -hmm. by the time they get to the point where they are a mature soul and a mature being, they have already internalized the fact that that's what is for me and that's not for me. Not because anybody told them that, but because life and experience and environment showed them that. Mm -hmm. And that is why we must be entrepreneurs. Because more so than even, because look, kids in the hood have parents that tell them, go to school, be smart, and you can be whatever you want to be. And then they walk out of the door and everything they see all day tells them the exact opposite. And so the good intentions and the best desires of those parents are outweighed by the entire rest of their world. Yeah, the results are too strong in the favor of the opposite of what that person is saying. Yeah, yeah. And so my mission is to say to the entrepreneurs, this is beyond how much money you make or how much money you've got in the bank. This is literally a calling. You are obligated to be as successful as you possibly can. Because you are a living, breathing, walking, talking example. And one more story from right around the time when I'm, I'm the broke-ass musician. I'm living in the welfare hotel. And as I told you, I'm riding a bicycle that a friend of mine who was a professional bike racer gave me. You know, one of those, you know, alloy, lightweight, you know, clip mm-hmm. off everything. You know, quick release everything. The nice one. Yes, real nice. Because Big he, time for, I'm sure that was a really yes. big deal for that. Oh that my God, that was, that was over a grand back then in 92. Ooh, what does that equate to now? That's probably like two or three grand worth of bike. And he got a sponsor and he got like a $3,000 bike. So this was his old bike. And he's like, dude, I know what you're doing. Can't give you a car, but I can give you a bike. So everyone in the welfare hotel knew what I was up to because a lot of them knew me and a lot of them, they were round the way folks. So we all knew each other from when we weren't in that situation. Yeah. So my room there was so small that I couldn't, study in the room. Not for nothing. I've been in in a jail cell bigger than the room I was living in at the time. (laughs) So I would be in the common area, you know, the area where, you know, with the couches and and chairs and the TV. And I'd be sitting there in one of the chairs and I'd have my books in front of me. I'd be studying. So I'm there one night and one of the young ladies, don't recall her name, probably didn't even then, but I knew her, you know, nodding acquaintance from around the the way in the neighborhood. Taps me on the shoulder. I look up. She's like, excuse me, I don't want to disturb you. I just, I just wanted to say thank you. I'm like, for what? It's like, well, you know, you know, we all know what you're doing here. So I see what you're up to. So I, I went back to the high school, which is about a 20 minute walk from where we were. And I got my GED. So I, I just wanted to thank you for that. And then she left and I went back to my studies and that moment sticks with me because what I realized was that inspiring people isn't always that you're the guy in the fancy suit standing in front of the podium giving the commencement speech. I was a broke-ass person just like her, living in this welfare hotel just like her. I was literally no better off than she was. 
but I was riding a bike 26 miles a day, four days a week going to college. And she was like, fuck that. If this guy can do that, I can take a 20 minute walk and get my damn GED. So me walking my walk was what inspired her. You know, that takes walking, walking your talk to the next level to, you know, pun intended, obviously, but, (laughs) (laughs) but for seriously, that goes perfectly with your whole point about, you know, the importance of role models and everything else. And you were unconsciously being a role model for this person. It's like the whole thing. You never know who's watching. Yes. And, and it's not necessarily your boss. It's that one person that you inspired, not even necessarily with your spoken words, but your unspoken words. That was a form of communication. And, and you've already mentioned like communication is ultimately like your thing. You have communicated that, yes, I can do what I need to do. And sure, it took me 20, you know, 26 or however many miles it was to go there and back. But for anything worth anything, as you know, it, it requires uh, some level of sacrifice, be it time, be it energy, be it, you know, even time with you know, important people to yourself, but whatever it is, it always requires some level of sacrifice. And at the end of the day, sometimes you don't have to be the Tony Robbins on top of a stage, raw, rawing, you know, right. thousands of people. If you are willing to be that person to just be a shining example of what it looks like to to go into the into the battlefield and with no hope other than I hope I come out the other end alive because that in and of itself would be a blessing. Yeah, <clears throat> that's that's sometimes like all you got. It seems like and for I think for so many of us, it's it's easy to get knocked off and forget about, you know, why we're doing something in the first place. But if you have nothing else than hope, then that's just what there is to do. And you, you gave this person hope you gave them that inspiration. And I think this is so important because look around at the world we're living in what's missing for a lot of people is that hope. It's like, this is a massive fog cloud. Like everything looks (laughs) like, especially if you pay attention to the news enough Everything looks like a massive shit stack. Yeah. Yeah. And here's the thing. I, all I was, was being my authentic self. And the ironic thing about that, which is why it sticks with me to this day, is my goal was to leave her and everyone else in that hotel fading as a dot in my rearview mirror. I didn't give the first fuck about any of them. So <laughs> the fact that I inspired her with my de- de- devoted mission of leaving them all in the dust, no animosity, no, 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 you know, hmm. negative feelings towards them. It's like, yeah, I'll go for what you know, but I'm on my road and devil take the hindmost. But because I was being my authentic self, I was an example of, wait, somebody like me in this wretched situation can stay the course? Because I, I'm not, to, not, I was biking. 13 miles and this was not a flat trip and I biked that winter spring summer fall a friend of mine who who you know years later would say yeah I remember passing you and you'd be riding in the snow yeah because I had to get to school I'd be riding in the pouring rain I'd be riding in fact I remember one time this is another interesting my life is almost like somebody was writing a screenplay so this is this is during the summer of, of that year now it's summertime I have pedaled a bike 13 miles up hills and you know, so what do I look like after a 13 mile bike ride in the hot sun? 
uh, I, soup. Yes. I would literally have to, <laughs> I would have to carry another t-shirt to change because as I'm standing there locking up the bike, I am literally dripping a ring of water of sweat pouring down off of me. I bet you were in shape. Yeah. The, I was skinny as a rail. My my shorts and underwear soaked through, socks soaked through, but I, I you know, there was no room, there's no locker room to change in. So all I could do was change my shirt, sit there in the funky bottoms. So I know I'm 31 years old. I'm here funky as an athlete that just got through playing that all-star game. Looking in the parking lot at 16 and 17-year-old kids getting out of the nice shiny cars their parents bought them for their high school graduation. And just as I'm about to send out the engraved invitations to the pity party, I hear the sound of an of a electric motor. And I, I turn and coming up the ramp is a guy in a wheelchair that is steered by three pneumatic tubes that he blows into for forward, left, and right. Across the arms of the wheelchair is a tabletop with the 26 letters of the alphabet and the 10 digits. And next to him in a cup is a dowel with a sponge on the top that obviously he grabs in his teeth and points out letter by letter to communicate with people. And this dude is going to class. Nobody there with the system did notice me because why would he give the crap about me? And I literally looked up and I'm not a particularly religious person and I wasn't even then, but I literally looked up to this guy and said, okay, I get it. Don't have to hit me with another brick. And if I wrote that scene in a movie, people would call bullshit on it because it would seem like a deus ex machina contrivance. But that actually happened to me just like that. I am literally here like, oh, woe is me. And here I am. And why did I make these life choices and these kids? And I got to ride this bike and I got to go sit in class and stinky, funky, smelly. And this dude, don't you think that dude would have traded places with me for anything to pedal that crank 13 times, fuck 13 miles. This guy can't change his own clothes. He can't wipe his own ass. He can't feed himself. And he's going to class. So what's my excuse? And every time I find myself falling into that self-pity, I remember that incident. It's like, dude, you have your strength. You got your health. You got your wits about you. Get to stepping. Life owes you nothing. Life doesn't even owe you your next breath. You have everything you need. That guy was not sitting there asking for pity. He didn't have a sign with a cup for people to throw coins into. He was going to class. And I I wondered to myself, what class is he going to? What is he going to do with the knowledge he has? All he can move is his head. But he's like, yo, I can move my head and I can hear and I'm getting it done. I don't know how he took notes. I don't know anything. He, he clearly, whatever it was, he had solutions for it because he was going to class. So. The only way that story could have <laughs> messed my world up anymore is if he had been like, I later found out he was Stephen Hawking. <laughs> <laughs> just something just like out of this world like that. Cause I'm like, I'm so taken back. I'm like, Whoa, like that is something oh, I, like straight I, out of I a think movie. Of that. I think of that because see, I didn't know that Stephen Hawking wasn't like that until well into his adulthood. 
Yeah, like college. I, I saw, I've yes. watched the movie. I, I think, I don't remember what the name of the movie married was. married and everything. So can you imagine having that stripped away? Can, you know, here's the thing. Can you imagine having that mind, the most brilliant physicist since Einstein or Max Planck or Niels Bohr in the Pantheon and all you can do is blink. The frustration of like, why? I would, I don't know. I would ask somebody to kill me. I don't even know how I can say, but instead he says, okay, you know what? If all I can do is think, then clearly that's what I'm here to do. And that is a depth of the human spirit. I can't even pretend that I imagine that I possess. Mm. Have you ever read the book, uh, Man, uh, Victor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning? No. Have you heard of the premise of the book? Yes. I think that that is a perfect pointer to everything that we're talking about. Because in short, not that I'm the most rehearsed on it, but Victor Frankl was a renowned uh, psychoanalyst of his time. And he lived during the... Uh, everything that was going on with, what was it? Was it, you see my history knowledge, <laughs> World War One with everything with Hitler that was going on. Was that two? Two, that was World War Two. That was two. World War Two. obviously the Hitler regime was doing what it's doing and he was one of the people and he details this. He, he kept notes of his experience in the concentration camps. Mm-hmm. And he details stories like memories that he had of being in these concentrations, like seeing people going in and out and like memorizing the patterns of the guards and knowing, Oh, if you're going out this way at this time, you're, you're dead. Wow. wow. And the entire book, hence the name man's for search for meaning is obviously he came out, he lived and he ended up, you know, writing this book. He said that, and this is the basic premise of the book is that in when you have nothing else and you have everything stripped away from you, all of your people, all of your known environments, all the things that you latched onto as being your comfortable pleasures and everything. The one thing that people have is the ability to choose their attitude in any given circumstance. He said he remembered being in those, you see pictures just like people stacked on top of each other in these beds, like covered in piss and shit because they didn't let them use restrooms. And he said that some of them, outright lost their minds yeah he said some of them still found opportunities and the possibility of joy and laughter because they held on to something that was bigger than them they were able to choose in that moment yeah that this is how i'm going to take this circumstance yeah and this is why my mission i mean obviously i have clients of all cultures and ethnicities but my entrepreneurial mission is to black and brown communities because we are the descendants of enslavement we are the descendants of of colonial and imperial conquest and that our ancestors endured circumstances and conditions that would shatter our minds to imagine enduring and they saw into the future and they saw us Hmm. and they lived their lives intentionally how do you survive that how do you survive being somebody's property You know, and, and a horse or a, or a cow might have more, you know, privileges and rights than you do. And you're a living, breathing, thinking human being. How do you not jump off a cliff or, or murder everyone you can get your hands on until they hang you from a tree or shoot you dead? But to hold down and say, OK, you know what? 
Maybe not me. Maybe not my children. Maybe not their children. But we're going to be free someday. This is not forever. And to maintain your personal integrity, because my mother was born in 1941. Her father, my mother is from South Carolina, from Charleston. So Mm -hmm. imagine the 1920s and 30s, the deep South. Her father was an entrepreneur. He owned his own uh, uh, mechanic shop and auto repair shop. And because, as, as he would tell her, he, he was just not going to have anybody call him boy. So he knew he couldn't work for anybody. You know, so this is ingrained in the warp and woof of my DNA going generations back. Now, I've never met my maternal grandfather, but I am very much the product of him because he raised my mother and my mother raised me. You know, and this sense of now... As I said, it was not my idea ever to become an entrepreneur. I didn't grow up thinking, one day I'm going to start my own business. I had a job that paid me over $100,000 a year of something that I loved doing. And I got to do it. I loved the people that I worked with, the people that I worked for. Everybody respected me. The challenge to my mind, because mine like mine, a technically oriented mind, the worst thing that can happen is boredom. See, a lot of people in in a job, they want to get to that plateau where they've learned everything they have to know and they just show up every day and do the same thing, that is the kiss of death for me. If I'm not constantly climbing the learning curve, then I'm just going to be like, oh, wait, just the same thing over and over again? That's, that's boring. So this ever-constant challenges and, and changes and, and new things to do and new implements and the whole scope of it, literally from the firewall and the data coming in, all the servers and workstations, installing the software, creating the user accounts, managing and maintaining all the printers and plotters and, and all of this. So a lot of people say, oh my God, how do you do all that? Like, no, that's great. Look at all the stuff I get to do. Mm-hmm. And I'm getting paid a lot of money. Where's the bad part? You know? And <laughs> then to 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 lose all of that, you know, but to realize that the point was never just about the money. And then to have to, by circumstances, be forced into entrepreneurship and realizing that it isn't about the fact, because I'm not making anywhere near what I made at that last job, even now in 10 years of working for myself. Mm-hmm. But first of all, every dime and dollar that I make, I make. And understanding that ultimately entrepreneurship is about, A, I get the trust and respect of everyone who takes me on as a customer, and B, that I manage to create enough manifest value that people pay me for it. I'm in the business I'm in because I said that's my business. That's what my company is called because I said that's what my company is called. And I charge the rate that I charge because I say so. And that is empowerment. And that is what I want to get our black and brown communities to understand. It's not just the hustle. I adopted a phrase this year. We grind to produce the flour to make the dough. We do not grind to grind ourselves into dust. So understand what it is to be on your grind. If you're on your grind and four years later, all you've done is worked hard, you're not doing it right. 
you know, we grind like a mortar and pestle, you know, like like a like a like a like a, a miller's wheel. You are supposed to be producing something that produces more. And that is why money, finance, and economics. It's going to be one of my first online forum, and and out of our workshop, realizing that what I've got to do, part of my mission is to get beyond the, no pun intended, the lone wolf tendency that I have amongst myself to find that group of peers, to come together, to form a panel, to talk to our communities and say, here's the situation. Here's where it is. It's beyond just how high you, you stack your chips. Okay. What are you going to do once you get money? Cause there's enough, there's how many rich celebrities or musicians or athletes, multi-million dollar incomes. And then five years later, they're broke because all they had was money. They didn't know how to manage their finances and they didn't understand how economics work. And when I'm talking about entrepreneurship as entitlement and empowerment, I'm talking about economics. You can spend your money anywhere. What is the economic effect of you spending your money within your community, supporting your local entrepreneurs? It's more than just do they make money? Is your neighborhood stabilized? What's the overall property value of the storefronts? What's the economic effect of you buying a home from a realtor within your own culture rather than from a different realtor? Or you buying a home within your community as opposed to working in your community, but you live somewhere else? What's the economic effect of that? Then take it a step down. You make a lot of money. There's a lot of, especially black and brown people, they make a lot of money, but they, they're cash and carry. So they don't have a bank account. So they don't have the financial clout to get access to capital. Of course, nobody's going to give you a mortgage. I don't care how much money you've made if it's all in stacks of 20s under your mattress because you don't have a credit score because you don't exist in the financial situation. You think it's just, I made all this money. Yeah, but how's the bank supposed to know that? And how's the bank supposed to know your financial history of your ability to take on debt and to repay it so that they know that you are a trustworthy risk, which is what it's all about. It's not just because you're black. It's because your credit score is 520. That's why you didn't get a mortgage. And I worked with an organization for years called Operation Hope. And the founder of it, John Hope Bryant, wrote a book called The Memo. And one of the things that he says is that you, and this is, the, I verified this. I went on and, and you can research this on the internet. You can pretty much predict the rate of crime in a particular community by looking at the average credit score of that community. First of all, I didn't know that was a thing, but there are sources where you can go, where you can see what the average credit score of a community is. One of the things that he says is there's never been a riot in a 700 credit score community. Because those people own their homes and their businesses. But a 500 something credit score community, I don't care what color the people are, those are the communities where the crime is. And he's the way he breaks it down. He says it's not about civil rights; it's about civil. It's about silver rights, you know, because there's a conversation going on in America about money, but we didn't get the memo, and that's why his latest book is called the memo. So, and that's part of why I work that organization because that resonates with where I'm coming from, which is about it's not about how to make money. There's plenty of sources, plenty of money gurus out there. If all you want to do is make money. It's more than that because money is just a tool. I've had a lot of money. I've, I've made six figures. 
I'm not better off economically than I was 10 years ago, but I'm happy I'm more fulfilled and I'm more satisfied. Because all I was was a guy that went to work and had a job, had a nice job. Three bedroom apartment in far in, in Washington Heights and you know, 15 grand in a bank. But other than me, who was that of any benefit to? You know, there are lots of people who have heard me speak. And when working with Operation Hope, they had a 12-week entrepreneurial training program. And for seven years, I was the lead presenter. I would present the first session of all of their 12-week entrepreneurial training programs. And I would address the graduating class. I was the penultimate speaker usually, you know. And so I have spoken to hundreds of aspiring entrepreneurs about the, the importance, the significance of, of entrepreneurship. And this is where I developed my curriculum of business uh, uh, development. A lot of the concepts that I'm now going out and speaking about, the, the first book that I wrote in 2016, Do Business Better, Why Small Businesses Fail and How Not To, that kind of then leads into my podcast, The Failure Guy. I'm working on my second book, which hopefully, uh, no, hopefully I will write it and I will get it done before the end of the summer. It's entitled, Everything You Know About Small Business is Wrong in which I take 20 popular sayings about business that everybody thinks they know and thinks is right, and I debunk them. Like, for example, the customer is always right. And I'd say, no, the customer actually is rarely right. Because if the customer was always right, why would they need you? Now, the customer is the one who must be satisfied. But just run this scenario in your head. The customer, I'm a tech guy, right? And the customer says, build my website this way. And I say, actually, you don't want to do that. I say, no, I think that's the way we should do it. Now, what if I say, okay, you know what? Fine, let's do it your way. And we do it that way. And the website performs even more poorly than it did before we did it that way. Now, what would the customer say to me if I say, well, you're the one, you said to do it. I did it your way. You know what they'd say to me? Well, what am I paying you for? You're supposed to be the expert. Now, my job is not to argue with them. My job is to educate and enlighten them as to why this is a better way of doing it. And, and part of that comes with, and then in, in that chapter of the book, I get into the diplomacy of it because it's not just saying you're, you're wrong, I'm right, because you're dealing with a human being. So I say, first of all, you never say to the customer they're wrong. You say, you know, I say, first of all, you have to learn the, the, the art of what I call the pensive utterance, which is, hmm. So say your customer is telling you something and it's just, it's, it's nonsense. It's utter gibberish. So you listen to them thoughtfully. And before you say anything, you just say, hmm. And then you try to find the one kernel of sanity and logic in what they said. And you say, okay, this right here, that, that made a lot of sense. Now, have you considered, let's, let's consider, see, not me, let us consider this. And then you slowly walk them back from the ledge, but it's, it's we're doing this. And you know what's going to happen when you implement the, the right way to do it. They're going to say, well, look at what we did. It's like, yeah, we did it. But that's fine because it doesn't matter who gets the credit as long as they pay the invoice. And what you have done is you've steered them away from madness without having to offend their ego. And so there's 19 other chapters like that, you know, in, in terms of taking things like small businesses are job creation engines. No, they're not. No businesses are job creation engines. Businesses create work. Work creates jobs. 
If you go on thinking that your purpose is a small business to create a job, it's going to suck the first time you have to lay somebody off because there's not enough work. You know, and on and on. And all of this has come out of the experience of actually being in front of people in the real world and me understanding as an entrepreneur the difference between how much money am I making and who do I serve? Because I could serve anybody. I could go and get the wealthy clients that have money, especially with my, my experience in the corporate world, if that's all I wanted to do. I've chosen to serve a community that, you know, they're resource constrained, to be honest. In fact, part of what I'm learning from Red Elephant is how do I monetize myself to the point that I'm not struggling so I can do the best for the community that I serve. Yeah. And you make a, made a point earlier about how, <clears throat> yes, you could go and serve those, you know, higher socioeconomic places. However, the, the choice to say, yeah, but how is my dollar affecting my local economy? How is it affecting those small businesses? Cause ultimately and I've heard this saying before you'd have more, expertise than I would on this, but the small businesses are essentially a major backbone of this entire ecosystem that is yes. uh, you know, living in, in this world that we live in. And, you know, all of a sudden you see businesses like small businesses and everything like shutting down and all that's like, these are the, these, these, these little guys are the ones that we need to be yes. feeding. We're like bailing out all the big guys, yes. but what about the little people who right. are handling all of the, the yeah. local economics here in New York? And this surprised me when I started to get very intentional about speaking on the subject of entrepreneurship and economy. Here in New York City, with the big skyscrapers and the world headquarters, 90% of the businesses in New York are small businesses. And by small businesses, that's businesses with 500 or fewer employees. Of those businesses, 75% have fewer than 20 employees. So we're talking very small businesses, what, what are the Department of Labor first to as micro enterprises. And if you think about it, you walk down any main street, the local bodega, the, the dry cleaners, the, the, the deli, they don't have 20 people total staff. And there's rows and rows and rows. Most businesses are not the corporation's headquarters of, you know, this Fortune 500 company. It's some small mom and pop shop. And and that's most of the businesses in most of the cities in most of the world. Mm-hmm. But now here's the thing. The 2% of the businesses that are the, the mega corporations employ 50, last time I checked the stats, over 50% of the people. Because one international corporation can have hundreds of thousands of employees. So how many 20-person shops do they equate to? And so that is why, perceptually, that is why, plus, let's face it, they're the lobbyists, they've got the millions of dollars to put into the pockets of the politicians. So, of course, they're the ones who are going to be bailed out first, because he that pays the piper calls the tune. That's just humanity. And that's the way it's been before there was even a United States of America. So that's nothing now. Again, all the more reason that I, I must support it, because, again, not only that, for those direct economic reasons as you're pointing out, but as we were discussing earlier, because the people, the families, the mothers, the fathers, and the children in those communities have to see an example of success, because that has to be the environment, that has to be what they breathe and swim in, that has to be what they, they, they encounter every day, that has to be the context of their reality. Otherwise, what is the context of their reality? Because context is decisive. You know, 
If I see despair, then I am in despair. If I see hope, then I'm hopeful. Yeah, yeah, and you've seen this happen. You've been in a mall and a toddler is running down and they trip and they fall. And their first reaction, they look up at their parent. If their parent gives them the concerned face, they start to cry. But their parent's like, hey, you okay? Come on, let's go. Then they're like, okay, shake it off. All dependent on the immediate feedback. That, Am I hurt? Oh, I guess not. Okay. Or, oh, look at the look on their face. Something I must, I. So we've got to decide what face do we put on and show to our community? We are the face. Those of us who are, who are conscious entrepreneurs, we are the face. Our community is stumbling and falling. And when they look up, what face do they see? That's where we are right now. Hmm. And bringing this all full circle, because your original intention, you can state it better than I could, being able to service that community, being able to be a shining example of that, because yeah, you're the, you're the one who's doing, you know, 26 mile rides, being able to lead that way. That is, that's ultimately all we have now is, is role modeling and being able to do everything we can in our local communities. I mean, this is opening my eyes in so many ways, because I'm like one of those people that, you know, I was like, oh, these are like really good ideas. And like, I'll kind of do it here and there, but to have it as like a, this has to be a way of being because this has massive ripple effects in all directions. Yes. The way that we do it is we, we take tiny little steps. We take tiny little bites and yes. we start to actually create what I think is, I think our future is more of a communal type living in the world where we're taking care of one another versus there's this in uneven and inequitable and unsustainable way of people trying to hoard and keep when there's so many of us who as a, you know, just speaking as a collective, like whether, regardless of my socioeconomic status or anyone else's, like we are in, inherently on this one little ball floating through the cosmic, like, yes, let's act like so. Yes. Well, all we are is community. And back to my intention, which is that I am a stand for entrepreneurship as entitlement and empowerment for communities of color. Of color. Mm-hmm. The thing that this current pandemic situation that we're in has exposed more than anything else is it shattered the illusion of control. And in fact, that you just use the very metaphor that I've been using when I state this. We are on a giant ball of clay, spinning like a top, rotating around a huge ball of, of fusing hydrogen 93 million miles away, so far away that it takes light eight minutes to get here. And we've got maybe five miles of atmosphere separating us from the cold, heartless void of space. And even this thin skin uh, rock that we think we're standing on a solid ground is actually floating and constantly moving atop molten lava. So we have no control. We thought we had control. We have influence. We have the ability to build, but we have no control. No government, no system, no business, no, we have no control. And we're all being shocked into the awareness of what we have control of. As you said earlier, we were talking about the, the, the search for meaning. How are we going to choose to be and react to our circumstances? Hmm. That's the only control that we have. Mm-hmm. And this pandemic has put that into stark release for everyone. And so the decision that we have bringing it back to my intention, is that our entrepreneur, we must do the best that we can. 
not because we're greedy or because we're materialistic, but because we have to stand as that shining example for our communities, which is all we have. All that you have are the communities that you're in. The, the people in your immediate surrounding, and then nowadays your, your virtual surrounding in terms of the people that you directly communicate with as we're communicating now in different states, but directly through these, this virtual connection. Yeah. And that's it. Everything else is just outside of the periphery, and that's conceptual. You know? So what are we, who are we going to choose to be? We must stand up, because it's easy to say, oh, well, I'm just going to go into survival mode, fight, flight, or freeze. Well, no, because that's what everybody else is doing. And they're, they're, they're going to look up and say, what do we do? And they need to see us saying, no, 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 it's okay. We're all in this together, but we got this. Let's go. Let's pivot into the change. I also use the metaphor. I say, look, when a tsunami's coming at you and all you've got is a surfboard, you've got two choices. But the only way to survive is to lay on your belly and to paddle directly at the wave. Because otherwise, if you stand here, you're either going to get swept away or crushed. And it seems like madness, but is that so? Do you see this? The only way to survive is to paddle into the wave. So is life. Yes, but most people are scared and they're standing here frozen looking at the wave cresting up. And they've got to see us saying, come on, come on, let's go. <laughs> looking like Mad Men. <laughs> exactly. Because it looks like madness, but they're going to realize, oh, wait a minute, that's right. The only way to survive the weight is to ride it. You can't control where it's going to go. But at least if you're on top of the wave riding it where it's going to go, you're not getting crushed by it because those yeah. are the only alternatives. And that's, that's pretty much where I find myself these days. I didn't make the tsunami. And I don't know that I know how to surf, but I'm about to find out. And that's all we can do. Yeah. I kind of bring my full intention, my intention full circle here is uh, obviously to, to speak truth and to have some fun. And I think that this is going to be a, a fun way to kind of button this conversation up because I haven't asked this question before. I'm like, mm, this could go one of two ways, but we're going to see how it goes. All right. So I'm, I'm going to play with you here a little bit. Okay. I want you to play with me that this is the, the last conversation you're ever going to have. This is it. Hmm. This, is a, this might be, yep. This might be the last thing we're ever going to share. If you could leave somebody with something, it's like, all right, this is it. I'm out. What are you going to leave? What are you going to leave people with? You're about to just transcend your body. You're going up. It's it. <laughs> okay. I would say, acknowledge your fear. Embrace your love. And do what there is to do anyway, without fear of the consequences, because mm -hmm. consequences can't be predicted. And there are no consequences without action. Brilliant. So that's it. Brilliant. And for those of you who are listening, I'll say this a million times over and over. Don't let this just be another conversation. Another thing you listen to, you're like, all right, cool. I got my podcast for the day. I'm going <laughs> to go, I'm gonna go on doing the things that I normally do. Like take something from this, whether it's acknowledging that fear, embracing the love and not letting the, the fear of the unknown, this, this potential tsunami, this wave be the reason why 
we quiver and hide. It's, it's time to step up and, you know, maybe it's, you're not going to go and, and have this, you don't, you, your inspiration isn't to go and have this massive impact in the world. Maybe it's just with your family. Yeah. Maybe it's with yourself. Even just leading oneself is as your story originally pointed at you were, you had them in the, in the, in the mirror way behind you and just yeah. being that role model yeah. that can be the difference. I never could have imagined. Cause here's the thing. The people who inspire and who lead, uh, a lot of time the term fearless is used. That's bullshit. We're not fearless. We have just as much fear as everybody else. We just don't let the fear paralyze us. One of the things, and you know, failure in my podcast, the failure guy, I have failure be an acronym that stands for first attempts in learning using real experience. And an acronym of fear that I'd heard um, was false experiences appearing real. Now, fear is natural. Fear is normal. Fear it can often let you know, okay, you hear that growl from the dark? That means you shouldn't go there because it's probably something that's trying to eat you. You know, we're going to experience fear, especially now everyone is scared. And anybody who tells you that they're, they're not is either stoned, crazy, or lying to you. Mm-hmm. It's just don't let fear paralyze you let it steer you certain things that you are extremely fearful of it probably is telling you you should do something else or go another way but if it's just that intended background fear acknowledge it and say yeah okay okay yeah i am scared because you know what everything that we've never done before brings a certain amount of fear and most of life is unknown i don't know what the next sentence i'm going to say and i'm the one that's saying it so yes yes my brothers and sisters out there we're, we're all scared. Even those of us who will stand in front of you and, and lead you. We might not appear scared because, again, we've got to put that face on. And we're not trying I'm to be the first one to tell you that I'm scared. Yeah, that's part of this whole mission. I'm going to tell you the truth. <laughs> the truth, Ruth. There, there, there's something there's something human in that. And, and that's I think what people need now more than ever is and not these leaders putting on faces, but leaders saying I'm scared, too. Yeah, I got the yeah. I got the fear in me. Yeah. And I'm still going to swim into that tsunami. Let's do it together. Yeah. There you go. Amen. Awesome. Cornell, I, I can't thank you enough for being on this, uh, this conversation with me. It's a podcast, but having this conversation with me, it's been so much fun. Uh, and yeah, if, if people want to get connected with you, what's a, what's a good way to, to handle okay. that? Um, well, my website is communitysolutions.com. That's the word community without the Y. Solution, C-O-M-M-U-N-I-T-S-O-L-U-T-I-O-N-S, CommunitySolutions.com. You can find me on Facebook. My Facebook handle is Cornell D. Green. Cornell like the university, green like the color, no E at the end, two L's in Cornell, Cornell D. Green. My Facebook group is Do Business Better. You just search for the three words, do business better. You'll see my bright, smiling face uh, with dreadlocks and a blue background. You know, please join the group. I uh, will start up my uh, live streams again. I have about a half a year's worth of live streams uh, currently up there about entrepreneurship, marketing, uh, customer engagement, all these sorts of things. Of course, the new live streams are going to be informed in the fact that we are here in the midst of a global pandemic. Um, I also have uh, my own audio podcast, The Failure Guy. You can find that at thefailureguide.com. And, um, you know, I'm also on Instagram, but I don't really do much there, even though I, I have a bunch of followers and I never understood. I had a bunch of followers. I had only, only four things I ever posted. Don't quite understand how Instagram works, but I'm getting up there. 
and I'm too old for TikTok. So <laughs> don't, don't look for me there, although I hear good things. Awesome. Well, thank you, Cornell. Thank you for being here again. And for those of you who are listening from the bottom of my heart, thank you for listening. Any amount of time, energy, effort you put into being here, I, I really appreciate it. Thank you for following your truth and choosing to follow the wolf within you. How? Peace, guys. Peace. Thank you so much for listening in. If you got value out of this message, we would love it if you subscribed and shared it with your tribe so we can continue to share this message and this medicine with people all over the world. Much love and peace be with you.